On today's episode, I'll be covering two thrillers that I affectionately refer to as dad movies, starting with The Fugitive from 1993 and The Hunt for Red October from 1990. everyone welcome to brandon at random reviews i am your host brandon griffiths thank you for stopping by i do appreciate it and like i said today we've got a couple of dad movies that i wanted to talk about but first i really want to talk about movies based on old tv shows and this does not include tv shows that have full-length features attached to them using a lot of the same principal cast and or crew so Things like South Park, Batman Mask of the Phantasm, Star Trek, the originals, the X-Files, and Saturday Night Live movies. Those are all the same people that originally portrayed the characters for the most part. And it is just not really what I'm looking for here. So the first example would be Wild Wild West with Will Smith and Kevin Kline. And that movie was legitimately awful. It was very over-the-top in a lot of ways, and it didn't really have very good humor in it. There were a lot of jokes that were attempted that just did not land for me. And overall, there's a lot of weird racist things in it, and I just can't really get into it. It's just, I mean, I used to like it when I was a little kid and it first came out, but it's like now, going back, it's like, holy shit, what the fuck was I thinking? Then we have Charlie's Angels, and they've made a few movies out of that TV show, but the ones I'm talking about are the ones from the early 2000s, I believe, with Cameron Diaz, Lucy Liu, and Drew Barrymore. And honestly, those movies, I used to like them when they came out, but I think it had a lot to do with finding the leading ladies attractive in them. I don't really think they were particularly good movies, and there were a lot of really weird moments where the girls were just like seemingly acting like they were having a good time and doing stuff and it was just it wasn't believable and I didn't really care for it. Then we have the Adams family and this is in reference mostly to those ones from the 90s, the Adams family and the Adams family values. And I never really was a big fan of those movies. They're not really my cup of tea. I'm not really a fan of dark movies with weird humor. I just don't really get into them and I don't find them funny and I just don't like sitting through them at all. But they were actually decent movies, I think, based on what I've heard people say. I mean, a lot of people like those movies a lot and they're really into them. Then we have Starsky and Hutch, which was, I think, a 1970s TV show. And in the 2000s, it was made into a movie with Ben Stiller and Owen Wilson. It was a pretty solid comedy. I really liked it, actually. I watched it quite a few times, but on that same token, I never felt compelled to go back and watch the show and see what it was all about because I was good enough with what they had provided me in the movie. And then we have Baywatch, which is a pretty recent one that they did, I think. 
it had Dwayne The Rock Johnson and Zac Efron and I think Alexandra Daddario, who is an upper echelon hottie, by the way. And I heard that that movie was piss poor, and I don't think I had any expectations of it being good because... To start off, Baywatch, the show, was like a soap opera, basically. I mean, it was just not a good show at all. It just had women in swimsuits and things like that, and they were running down beaches and stuff, so it kind of kept the audience's attention. Then we have The Avengers with Rafe Fiennes, I believe, and Uma Thurman, and that was an old TV show with Diana Rigg and some guy, I don't remember his name. Honestly... That movie was made in the 90s, and it was a fucking joke. I mean, it was a really fucking bad movie. They covered it on how did this get made. There are so many issues with it. It's just very poorly acted, and they didn't spend any money where they should have spent money. Like, they didn't have a lot of extras in scenes that merited having extras, and I just can't really understand that. Then there's the Brady Bunch movie, and this one's a little different. It's not really truly the same as these other movies where it's like it's trying to do a serious replication of the original TV show. It was more of a parody, and honestly, I liked that movie a lot when it came out. I thought it was really funny, and it was obviously nothing like the real Brady Bunch. Like, the spirit of it was completely different. The tone was way different, but it was very amusing, and I just can't bring myself to revisit because I don't think that that's going to be a particularly good movie if I watch it again. Then we have Get Smart, and that was a Mel Brooks directed or produced TV show that was very silly. It was about like this secret agent that had all these gadgets, and it was just really goofy and funny. And I remember I've watched a handful of episodes of that show, and it's really funny. But the one that they made in the 2000s with Anne Hathaway and Steve Carell I watched it once, and it was okay. It wasn't like a horrible movie. It was just, it was nothing to write home about at all. It just wasn't particularly great to the point that I'd want to watch it again or buy the movie or anything like that. And then we have Inspector Gadget, which was a cartoon from the 90s, and I really loved that cartoon. I thought it was really amusing and fun to watch, and Inspector Gadget always was trying to solve these cases, and he was always fucking it up, and his niece Penny and her dog were ultimately solving most of them behind the scenes. But they made this live-action movie out of that show, and it starred Matthew Broderick. When I heard that he was cast, I was like, really, do you think that's a good guy to play him? He doesn't have the same demeanor, his voice is way different. What on earth were you thinking making this guy the lead in your movie? And of course, it sucked. So it's not one that really stands out to me as being one that I would even check out to just see how bad it was. It was just not good. And of course, we have Mission Impossible, which I think has become such a successful film franchise that people kind of forget that that was ever a TV show even though the TV show, from what I've heard, is pretty different from what they actually did in the movies. It was just a different kind of show. It was a little less action-packed, and I guess, I mean, I've never watched the show. I think I saw part of an episode one time, and it was this guy getting locked in a room, and he had to make a mask because masks are a big deal 
in Mission Impossible movies, and I really can't get behind that whole thing because it's just not realistic at all because you could fucking tell if somebody was wearing, even if it looked exactly like the person they were trying to imitate, it's like it doesn't look like them once you get it on your face. You look like you have this puffy face and it looks ridiculous. The only way you could make it work is if you found someone that was similar enough looking and they could just make themselves up without a mask to look like the person. But that's obviously going to be pretty rare, so they couldn't really count on that, so they just did the mask thing, and then they just had the actor step in that the mask was imitating and go from there. And that brings us to The Fugitive, released on August 6th, 1993, based on the 1960s TV series of the same name, directed by Andrew Davis, and he also directed... Under Siege, which is Die Hard on a Navy ship, basically, and it has Steven Seagal in it, and honestly, it could be a pretty solid movie if not for the Steven Seagal of it all. For the writers, we have Jeb Stewart and David Twohey. Jeb Stewart was a writer on Die Hard, and honestly, that's a fucking great movie to have on your resume, especially if you're making an action thriller. Fuck yeah. David Twohey, who did Waterworld, which I've talked about before. It's basically just the road warrior if the planet was consumed with water. And he also did the Chronicles of Riddick movies. And I can honestly say I have never seen a single second of those movies. I wouldn't know one if I saw it other than I could probably figure out what it is based on if I saw Vin Diesel or something in it. For the producer, we have Arnold Copelson. And he did Falling Down. And I've talked about that one. That's one of my faves. Honestly, it's so cool. Just Michael Douglas going on a rampage in LA. It's fucking great. He did Seven, which is a David Fincher movie starring Brad Pitt and Morgan Freeman. And that one's an amazing thriller. Great fucking movie. Honestly, I can't say enough good things about it. He also did U.S. Marshals, which is the spinoff of The Fugitive. And that one centers around Tommy Lee Jones's character, Gerard, and he is solving some case unrelated to The Fugitive in that movie, and it's pretty decent. It's got Wesley Snipes and Robert Downey Jr. It's pretty fucking good, but it's not quite as good as The Fugitive at all. He also did The Devil's Advocate. What can I honestly say about this movie? I've had people tell me that I need to watch it, and then I fucking did, and it's like, this is a fucking stupid movie. And basically, the title of the movie gives away what they set up as a plot twist at the end of the movie, and it's like, why are you doing this? Why are you naming this movie this if this is what you're going to try and make the reveal be? But anyway, I digress. It's just, it's not a good movie. Keanu Reeves and Al Pacino and all that, I mean, it could have been a good movie, but they really didn't bring it home. For the score, we have composer James Newton Howard, And he's a bit of a powerhouse composer, so I'm going to talk about a few more of his movies than I do normally. He did Glengarry Glen Ross, which is a solid movie. It's got a great cast. And honestly, if you're not going to watch the movie, at least YouTube Alec Baldwin's scene in that movie. He is fucking spectacular in it. He goes on this tirade talking to all these salesmen and telling them to shape up or ship out, basically. He did Primal Fear with Richard Gere and Edward Norton, and I believe that was Edward Norton's first major role, and he's very fucking good in it. I'm not a big Richard Gere fan, but honestly, that movie is pretty fucking solid. 
he also did Runaway Bride, which is a movie with Julia Roberts and Richard Gere. I feel like that movie, I haven't seen the whole thing all the way through, but what I gather from it is that it's pretty fucking stupid and not enjoyable. I mean, for instance, just to look at the front cover of the movie, like the poster alone, it's Julia Roberts sitting down facing Richard Gere, who is also sitting down, and she is, I think, wearing a wedding dress, and she's lacing up these tennis shoes. It just really sets the tone for me of what kind of movie it's going to be. It's just, I don't really think it's good. I think it's kind of fucking stupid. She runs away from all these weddings. He also did several M. Night Shyamalan movies. And I honestly like M. Night Shyamalan's early movies. It's just, he really kind of got stuck on the idea that he needed to have a big plot twist reveal at the end of the movie and just kind of pull the rug out from under everybody. It's like, dude, you can just make a regular movie without a twist. Honestly, it's going to be fine. You don't fucking need to have a twist in every movie. I'm sure you have it in you to write a story that is satisfying and doesn't have that big element to it. He also did I Am Legend with Will Smith. That's about the man who is basically the last man on Earth, but not really. And we're just seeing how he's surviving and what he's doing to try and find people and how he's trying to stop these creatures from taking over and things like that. And James Newton Howard also collaborated with Hans Zimmer on The Dark Knight. That movie has one of my favorite scores of all time. It might even be my favorite score of all time. It's so fucking well done. It feels so right when you're watching the movie. It's like, I don't know what that movie would be without it, but it would feel fucking weird. For the cast, we have Harrison Ford, who plays Dr. Richard Kimball, and he was Indiana Jones in all of the Indiana Jones movies. Honestly, I can't say enough good things about the first three Indiana Jones movies. Obviously, the fourth one was not particularly great. A lot of people didn't like it, and I was one of them. They're also making a fifth one that I'm not very excited about, but I'll probably check it out at some point. I doubt I'd go to the theater and see that movie, but it might actually do something that I'm not expecting. I don't know. He was Han Solo in the Star Wars movies, and honestly, if you think about it, you've got Han Solo and Indiana Jones, and those are like two of the coolest movie characters of all time, and they're both played by the same fucking guy. I mean, what does that say about him? He was in Patriot Games and A Clear and Present Danger as Jack Ryan. Those are Tom Clancy's stories. I didn't really think those were actually particularly great movies. I watched them once, and I really didn't need to see them again. But there's actually a light connective tissue motherfucker there because Harrison Ford plays this character named Jack Ryan, and that's actually the character that Alec Baldwin plays in The Hunt for Red October, which is the next movie in this episode. So I just found that kind of interesting. And last but not least for Harrison Ford, we have Ender's Game, which I covered on my blog. I thought it was a really good movie. I never read the book, so I don't have those gripes about it. And maybe if I had, I would. I would be pissed about something that they did with the movie. But ultimately, I don't think the movie was successful enough to keep making the different Enders books in the Orson Scott Card series. And so ultimately, I don't think we'll ever see another one of those movies come out. 
Then we have Tommy Lee Jones, who plays Deputy U.S. Marshal Sam Gerard, and he was in JFK, and that's one I desperately need to revisit. It's a really fucking good movie. It's too bad that it stars Kevin Costner because it just makes it so fucking difficult to enjoy, but it's still a cool fucking movie, and it's based on a true story, obviously, and I really enjoy that in a movie a lot of times, so... I mean, I like it. It's just the Kevin Costner of it all really makes it difficult. He was in The Client, and that was a John Grisham novel made into a movie. And it had, I think, Susan Sarandon in it, and I can't remember who else. But it was a solid movie. I haven't watched it in ages, and I don't know that I want to go back and revisit it anytime soon. He was in Batman Forever, and that one is one I believe is previously covered on this podcast. I don't know. As I'm recording this, the Batman Forever episode that I have done has not come out yet, but I can't remember when I'm going to release this episode. So if it's already come out, then I hope you enjoyed it. And if it hasn't come out, then that's a little sneaky peek. He was also in Men in Black, and that one has him and Will Smith. Basically, it's just a really funny, good movie. I really enjoy it. I revisit it from time to time. I have a good time watching it. The other movies in the series, I don't know that I can get behind. I didn't really like the second one very much. I thought it was okay. I never saw the third one or the Men in Black International movie or anything like that. I just saw the first one and the second one. Honestly, the first one is more than worth watching, but I can't recommend the others for that reason. Then we have Joe, Joey Pants Pantaleano, and he plays Deputy U.S. Marshal Cosmo Renfro, which is, by the way, some fucking name. He was in Bad Boys, and the Bad Boys movies are not good, guys. I don't know why people like these movies. They're fucking stupid. And it's like the humor is just fucking terrible in them. I just don't really find anything in those movies that I can get behind. He was in The Matrix with Keanu Reeves and Lawrence Fishburne. That movie was fucking solid. Honestly, I really like that one still. And I actually like the sequels to it, or at least the first two sequels. I don't know. I haven't seen the fourth one yet, but I heard that was kind of terrible. But I really like the original trilogy of that, and I find it very enjoyable but not everybody feels the same way on it. He was in Memento with Guy Pierce, and honestly, that movie is really fucking interesting to watch. It's a cool idea for a story. It's definitely not one that I feel compelled to go back and revisit from time to time. It's more once in a great, great while I'll watch it, but once you get the gist of what the story is about, it's like this guy can't convert short-term memories to long-term memories, So every several minutes or so, it's like he resets, and so he can't remember anything, and then he's basically just spending the entire movie taking notes and trying to piece together this murder case or whatever the hell it is. Then we have Julianne Moore, who plays Dr. Anne Eastman, and she was in Boogie Nights, which is a solid P.T. Anderson movie, definitely worth checking out. I would say it's probably P.T. Anderson's best movie that I've seen. The only thing with P.T. Anderson movies is it doesn't always feel like there's really a full-fledged plot there. They just kind of have these events happening, but it doesn't really feel like a narrative. I don't know. It's, It's bizarre to me. Maybe I'm just an idiot. I don't know. 
she was in The Big Lebowski, and she actually has a pretty small role in that movie, but she's pretty fucking great in it. She is a really eccentric character. She was in Magnolia, which is another P.T. Anderson movie, and that one has Tom Cruise in it, so I have never seen it because I don't know if I can get through the movie with the Tom Cruise of it all. And she was also in Crazy Stupid Love with Steve Carell and Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone, and I really fucking love that movie. It's very funny. I love the dynamic between Ryan Gosling and Steve Carell and just how Ryan Gosling treats Steve Carell and basically tries to whip him into shape. For casting notes, Harrison Ford passed on Jurassic Park to make this film, which I am so fucking happy for, despite the fact that I would have loved a version of Jurassic Park that starred Harrison Ford. I think that would have been amazing. Among those considered for the role of Dr. Richard Kimball were Alec Baldwin, Andy Garcia, Nick Nolte, Kevin Costner, Christopher Reeve, Mel Gibson, Al Pacino, Richard Gere, Jeff Bridges, and Michael Douglas. Among those considered for the role of Deputy U.S. Marshal Sam Gerard were John Voight and Gene Hackman. For the plot synopsis, after being framed for the murder of his wife, a doctor has to race to uncover evidence and ultimately clear his name while being pursued closely by a group of U.S. Marshals. For the tagline, we have a murdered wife, a one-armed man, an obsessed detective, the chase begins. All right, guys, let's just dive right into the plot of this fucking movie. So to start off, this is such a fucking early 90s opening credit sequence at first glance. But we get footage of a woman being murdered interspersed with swooping aerial views of the city. We don't really know what's going on just yet, but be patient, guys. We're like two minutes in. There are amazing shots of a woman lying dead by a phone in a living room. The images we're seeing are made to look like photo negatives in this one shot. And it's a very cool look. I feel like this movie probably broke a lot of new ground with the way it was shot. The pounding score is so fucking stupendous. We finally see Dr. Richard Kimball, played by Harrison Ford, with a beard, and he's visibly upset as he's processing what's happened after his wife was murdered. My god, what a fucking wreck anyone would be in this situation. Can you fucking imagine? We see a guy reporting the story, facing a news camera on the street, And I gotta say, I am so glad that the news stations near me seemingly have good-looking younger reporters now. I don't need to be looking at a guy that looks like he's 55 wearing a newsy cap telling me about some awful thing that's happened. It's just gonna make it that much worse. To me, that's just way too much bad stuff wrapped into one. So Kimball gets in the back of a car and we get a flashback. And I love the way that they do this throughout the movie. It's like, Hey, what the fuck happened? And then it's like, oh, here's what happened and how things were before on the night it happened. And it just keeps jumping back momentarily to Dr. Kimball presently after the murder scene and then again to the night prior. The night prior, they show him go to a party with his wife and then they go home and he gets called on the way home and he has to cut the night short for some emergency at the hospital A couple of things to note, Kimball really loves his wife, and she seems to really love him. He's a very well-respected doctor, and he knows a lot of people because of the high-profile job he's in. He's clearly nervous in the present and is fiddling with his beard in the interrogation room, and the cops ask him a bunch of questions. 
Little bit of trivia on that. According to the DVD commentary, the scene in which the Chicago police interrogate Richard Kimball was improvised. Harrison Ford had no idea what questions would be asked or how he should respond to them. Kimball says it was a one-armed man who broke into his house and fought him and killed his wife. God, I just fucking love the way they keep asking stuff and they flash to an in-person view of the crime scene. The detectives ask him about his home security system, which evidently is pretty good. And then it flashes to the forensics team at the crime scene, checking the door, and there's no sign of forced entry. The detective asks Kimball if he owns a gun, and it flashes to the crime scene with the gun laying on the floor. Harrison Ford, and I'll be saying this several times, but I don't want to forget to say it, is fucking amazing in this movie. Like, he's behaving exactly as a man in his character's situation would. He's just so fucking nervous and distraught and upset. So, with the fact that he's clearly being framed for the murder, there's obviously a lot of mounting evidence that leads the police to believe that he did it. They point out that the wife had a life insurance policy, and so that looks a lot like motive to them. But I mean, there has to be more than that, right? They point this out later, but Richard doesn't have trouble with money at all. So they book Kimball, and the case goes to trial. We keep seeing more and more of how the fateful night unfolded and how detectives and lawyers pieced together the puzzle incorrectly, but they did it in a way that they realistically had reason to believe it would have happened, from what they know at least, for sure. So Sayla Ward plays the wife Helen, and this must have been a rough shoot for her. Just a difficult part to play, honestly. Basically 95% of her scenes are so fucking graphic, it's just her in complete distress and everything. Through the confusing way she was talking on her 911 call, considering she was probably in deep shock, they basically are led to believe that she was saying her husband was the murderer. But we see in the flashbacks that Kimball came home as it was happening and clearly didn't know anything was going on. He took his sweet time going up to find her since he didn't have reason to believe anything was amiss and walked into what was happening upstairs. The beginning of this movie is grim as fuck, by the way. There are no wins for our protagonists at all. Kimball gets sentenced to death by lethal injection, and they put him in hand and ankle cuffs, and they're transporting him to jail. To be honest, I feel like I've just been walking through the plot of this, but it's critical to understand what happened early on in this movie. This bus transport of Kimball and the other prisoners scene is so epic and tense, you just know some shit's about to go down. Because the story is not going to just be about Kimball serving his time and being executed. The other prisoners exchange glances and it's like, oh shit, something really is going to happen. One of the prisoners appears to start choking and the other prisoners urge the guards to help him. And you'd think that there would be a planned and careful procedure for times like this, right? I mean, you're not going to just walk back vulnerably into a group of prisoners on the bus and hope everything is happening the way that it's being presented to you. Of course, the guy's faking and all fucking hell breaks loose as the guards fight the prisoners and start firing shotguns. There's a big struggle... They shoot the driver of the bus, and the bus goes over a guardrail and rolls way down a fucking hill, and they're seemingly fucked. The bus ends up laying on some train tracks at the bottom of the hill, and you would not believe what starts coming down those very same train tracks blowing its horn. I'll give you a hint, it's like a model train, but significantly bigger and with more power. 
Kimball is given the keys to his cuffs by this old guard played by Richard Rayleigh, who played Tom Smikowski in Office Space. He gives Kimball the keys to hopefully have him help the injured guard since he knows Kimball's a doctor. And Kimball actually manages to save the injured guard before diving clear of the train with the guard on his back. He has to fucking outrun a real live locomotive while his legs are still bound in chains. Trivia on that, a train was actually crashed for the movie, although Kimball jumping free was a superimposed image. Ford stood on a platform in front of a blue screen and jumped off onto a cushion. More info, the train crash, which cost $1 million to film, was shot in a single take using a real train with a locomotive whose engine had been removed. Since Andrew Davis only had one chance to crash the train and had to get it right, he consulted an array of engineers, stunt doubles, and the insurance company to predict what would happen. The train was expected to crash into the bus at 35 miles per hour, but the director was an error, and the train came out at 42 miles per hour. Nevertheless, the scene went exactly as planned otherwise. Kimball climbs up the hill and is met by one of the prisoners who orchestrated the outbreak. The prisoner unlocks Kimball's ankle cuffs and he tells Kimball to flee wherever he wants so long as he doesn't follow him. Then the U.S. Marshals arrive on the scene later, probably like an hour and a half later maybe, I think that's what they say. And of course, Tommy Lee Jones fucking kills it in this movie as Deputy U.S. Marshal Sam Gerard. I love the dynamic with these marshals, just the way they behave and talk to each other like they've worked together for a long time and have done a lot of cases together. You can really see why these guys got the spin-off movie, U.S. Marshals. The cops are interviewing the old guard who gave Kimball the keys, and he's explaining what happened, and he isn't sure, but he thinks all the prisoners are dead. He also takes credit for saving the guard that Kimball saved, like a real fucking class act. This head police officer that's doing the questioning is a real knob to Gerard when he shows up, and Gerard decides to officially take over the investigation when he realizes how terrible the priorities are for the police. The police legitimately want to make this an open and shut case for fear of all the calls they would get if they actually admitted that there were potentially prisoners on the loose. They immediately find some hand and ankle cuffs, which are apparently called leg irons, they realize the guard's story doesn't add up, and he says he doesn't even know where his keys are. I love the way the U.S. Marshals do their questioning, too. They totally call the guard on his shit when he's clearly lying. They try to figure out roughly how far Kimball could have gotten, and while Gerard instructs everyone on the search radius, we see this interspersed with shots of Kimball running through the woods trying to get away. Kimball steals a guy's coveralls at, I guess, what is probably a gas station or something. Joey Pants is one of the U.S. Marshals, and he always is Joey Pants in every movie I've ever seen him in, and I'm not complaining about that. I think he's really good. It's just he basically plays the same guy, even if the title or profession is different. He's still Joey Pants. They find a guard alive in the wreckage, and Kimball goes into a hospital or medical facility of some sort, and treats his wounds. I like the whole doctor aspect of his character and all it adds. It gives him such a leg up at times. Kimball then switches into plain clothes that he steals from a patient's room at the hospital and also shaves clean. Little trivia there, rather than having to come up with a disguise for Richard Kimball, director Andrew Davis had Harrison Ford start the film with a beard and then just shave it off. 
A cop straight up asks Kimball if he's seen Kimball and doesn't recognize that it's him. The marshals start looking into Kimball's case. Then they find out that an officer thought he saw Kimball at the hospital. Kimball fled the hospital in a fucking ambulance of all things, but it was probably the easiest to get keys to it, but it's not at all low profile, obviously. The marshals are now in helicopters searching for Kimball, and the way this chase is shot is superb especially when Kimball heads into a tunnel and he's basically trapped there. Little bit of trivia, there wasn't enough room for the cameraman to be inside the helicopter with Tommy Lee Jones in the helicopter chase. He had to be strapped to the outside of the chopper in order to get clean footage. More info, the helicopter chase was twice as long in the original preview cut and was edited down about 97 different times for time and pacing. Kimball escapes down a storm drain where he gets cornered in the tunnel. What's important is Kimball is just running right now. He hasn't even had a chance to start investigating his wife's murder, and that's where it actually gets even more compelling to watch. The marshals find the drain that Kimball escaped through and head down and go after him. This scene in the sewers with Kimball being chased by Gerard is one of the most memorable sequences in film history for me. Gerard finally catches up to Kimball, and Kimball has a gun. And I just, I don't know, I can't remember the part, I don't know if I noticed it as I was watching it, but I think Gerard drops his gun and that's how Kimball gets a gun. But there's this fucking epic exchange where Kimball's got this gun and he's like, I didn't kill my wife. And all Tommy Lee Jones says is, I don't care. A little trivia, according to producer Roy Huggins, Gerard's line in response to Richard Kimball's claim of innocence, I didn't kill my wife, was originally written as, that isn't my problem. At the request of Tommy Lee Jones, it was changed to, I don't care. It's revealed after Kimball flees some more that Gerard has another gun and goes after him. This moment at the very end of the sewers where Kimball is standing in a tunnel that empties out to the bottom of the dam is one of the more referenced moments in film. It's been spoofed, parodied, and emulated a million times, and I fucking love it. It just shows what a great scene it truly is. The movie Wrongfully Accused with Leslie Nielsen was a direct parody of this film, but so many others have imitated it. It's fucking nuts. Kimball dives off with the rushing water to the bottom of the dam, and they honestly can't believe it. Gerard can't be sure that Kimball is dead, so he won't give up looking for him, so... He starts coordinating a search down the river, complete with helicopters and hounds and anything else you could think of. Kimball finally comes ashore on the banks of the river, and he's obviously exhausted. I feel like I would just straight up die in this moment if I'd been through all of that and realized I had to get up and keep running. It gets dark, and obviously searching gets harder. As Kimball is lying there in the woods, he has flashbacks to his wife. There are some happy memories at first, then it switches to the night of the murder as he desperately tries to save her. Kimball goes to a truck stop bathroom and dyes his hair very fucking dark. The marshals get a lead on what we're to assume is Kimball's location, and they plan to go in the morning. And I'm kind of like, why the fuck are you waiting until the fucking morning? to go after him. Why wouldn't you go right fucking now? He could be gone by the morning. He was picked up by some woman, they're saying, and they're going to her house and surrounding the whole place. It turns out that it's actually the prisoner that also escaped who told Kimball not to follow him, that they're busting, and he winds up dying in a standoff. Kimball calls his lawyer, and the lawyer wants to know where he is, but 
Kimball says he's in St. Louis, and he's clearly not in St. Louis. The marshals are listening to the conversation between Kimball and the lawyer on tape later, and they ascertain that he is in Chicago based on what they hear, like the trains and things like that, or the subway trains or whatever you want to call them in Chicago. So obviously they're going to go after him. I mean, what the fuck else were they going to do? Kimball tracks down a friend named Dr. Nichols and wants some money, and Nichols just gives him what he has. God, car power windows were painfully slow in the early 90s. Like, Kimball walks up to this Dr. Nichols' car, and he rolls down the window, and it's like, I was fucking looking at my watch halfway down and just waiting for it to fucking finally get there. My God, they're so much better now. Gerard is trying to understand Kimball's case, and he doesn't sound sold on the insurance money motive. There just seem to be a lot of holes in the story. He says he wants to wait on Kimball to get all settled in and try and re-enter his life somehow. He thinks that's when they'll catch him. And that's probably not a bad way to go. I mean, he probably would want to get back to some kind of normalcy. Kimball finds a little apartment to rent, then he goes to the hospital to do some digging. He goes to where they do prosthetics, like the one-armed man had that killed his wife. It's very slick the way Kimball just sneaks around this hospital without being noticed. Kimball's hair does look inhumanly dark for a man his age, though. When he dyed it, he really overdid it. It wouldn't necessarily give him away to any passerby, but I'd probably notice him and at least think to myself, why the fuck is that man's hair so fucking dark? Dr. Nichols is getting questioned by the marshals and admits that he had a run-in with Kimball that morning and explains what happened. Gerard asks him why he thinks Kimball would come back to Chicago, but Nichols won't help and thinks Kimball is innocent. He tells them Kimball is too smart to be caught, and the marshals basically take that as a personal challenge, obviously. Why don't you also just shit-talk Michael Jordan in the middle of the NBA Finals while you're at it? They meet with another friend of Kimball's, a Dr. Wayland, and she also says Kimball is innocent and that she would help him if he asked her. Why are you telling the cops this if you don't have to? Basically, it just seems like you're kind of bringing unwanted suspicion on yourself. Kimball is looking through the prosthetic case files and makes a fake hospital badge and shit, and he does a pretty solid job of it. Then we get more flashbacks, and we finally get to see what the one-armed man looks like. There's a bust in progress at the apartment building where Kimball lives, and he's bugging out about it. But it's actually for some other tenant, so I guess he's good, at least for now. I think we saw this tenant when Kimball was renting the place, maybe? Kimball poses as a janitor using his fake badge and infiltrates the prosthetics lab. I say infiltrates like he's breaking into a nuclear missile silo, but realistically, no one even seems slightly suspicious of him at all. Kimball finds the file he needs on the computer and prints it off. The police are approached by a man eating a burrito who says the Kimball from the Wanted posters is the guy staying at the apartments where he lives. I want to say this is the same guy from the apartment bust a few moments ago, but I'm not really sure. Presumably this guy is hoping to take some heat off himself by ratting Kimball out. I don't go into the police department often, but I can't imagine chilling out casually eating a fucking burrito while talking to them. It just doesn't seem like it'd be right. Kimball is at the hospital still and is asked by a lovely doctor played by the one and only Julianne Moore to transport a patient to another floor. 
Kimball basically figures out what's wrong with the patient and updates his chart and all that, and the doctors on the other floor rush him in to save him. A little trivia, originally Julianne Moore's character had a bigger role in the film, even after she exposes Kimball briefly. Kimball was to have sought her out for help and eventually fall for her. These scenes were filmed and deleted from the final cut of the film. This is the reason that her name is still credited as one of the main stars of the picture. And honestly, that's for the best. I don't think that Kimball having a love interest while he was trying to figure out who murdered his wife would really be a good call. I think it would not make sense. Also, Julianne Moore's brief role landed her an interview with Steven Spielberg, who would later cast her in The Lost World, Jurassic Park from 1997. Julianne Moore stops Kimball to grill him about looking at the patient's x-rays and taking him to the wrong floor, and she's gonna fucking bust him, it looks like. Like, come on, Julianne Moore, be cool, you're normally so great. She tells Kimball to stay where he is while she calls for security, and it's like, come on, Jules, you know that's never gonna fucking work. Kimball obviously flees in this moment like any human would, Gerard comes and questions Julianne Moore, and she tells him what happened, and she says Kimball saved that patient's life because Dr. Richard Kimball is an all-around great guy who only wants to help. The marshals are trying to figure out why Kimball was at the hospital at all when they realize the connection to the prosthetics department. Kimball does some calling around on the prosthetics cases that he looked up, and he gets what seems to be a hit— the marshals are also now digging into the cases and it's getting pretty tense. We know it's St. Patrick's Day because they dyed the river green in Chicago. Kimball is going to see this prisoner that he's hoping will be the one-armed man he's looking for, but it's not him. Basically, he just doesn't match the same physical description. And I want to say, yeah, Kimball knows what the guy looks like, so he would recognize him right away. Gerard spots Kimball leaving meeting with the prisoner down the stairs at the courthouse, and the chase is fucking on. I'm so excited. They're in this city hall type building, and Gerard and the marshals and officers are chasing Kimball. Gerard is acting like he's going to shoot at Kimball in this crowd of people at the courthouse, and I feel like that's a bit much. Sure, Kimball could be armed and dangerous, but still... Fun fact about that, according to the director, Tommy Lee Jones originally argued that his character, being concerned for the welfare of innocents around him, would not fire at Kimball inside a crowded building such as the courthouse. The dispute caused a brief delay in filming, but the director finally convinced Jones to do it as scripted. There's this exciting moment where Kimball almost gets himself shot by Gerard when he gets stuck at these glass doors, but when Gerard shoots at him, it turns out the glass is bulletproof. Neat little tidbit there, wax bullets were fired at the glass door at the same time Tommy Lee Jones was firing his blanks to help create the illusion while not endangering Harrison Ford more than necessary. Kimball makes his way into the parade, and it's amazing how he just blends into the crowds like he does. About that, the scene where Kimball is running through the St. Patrick's Day parade was not scripted. This was a later addition by Andrew Davis. Davis, a native of the city, really wanted to capture the parade and was granted permission from the mayor's office to film the day of the parade. The entire sequence was shot with a handheld Steadicam. Without rehearsal, Ford and Jones just went out into the crowd and did their thing, with camera operators running around trying to keep up. 
Ford observed that since his character was keeping a low profile, it meant he himself didn't stand out much and lasted several minutes in the crowd before being recognized. Gerard is relentless though, he won't fucking stop, but he does lose Kimball in the chaos. They have a press conference where the marshals and police obviously limit sharing what they know about Kimball and what they plan to do. Kimball tries to call on another lead in his prosthetics cases while laying low at a bar, but there's no answer. He was calling the home of Frederick Sykes, who is the one-armed man, for realsies this time. He goes to Sykes' place and he begins looking around at pictures in his house. He's a former police officer and all that. Kimball recognizes a man in a photo with Sykes from having met him presumably on the night of the murder. Watching the pieces of the puzzle falling together is so satisfying and well conveyed throughout this movie, but most of all, in the final act here, it's just the fucking best. So basically, long story short, Sykes now works security for executives at a pharmaceutical company that was coming out with a new drug called Provasic. Kimball evidently researched Provasic and found that it caused liver damage and this prevented FDA approval of the drug. Kimball calls Gerard from Sykes' house to tell him he found a big break in what he's trying to uncover. Since he's calling from there, he deliberately leaves the phone off the hook so they can trace the call there. They obviously go to the one-armed man Sykes' house and set it up for forensic analysis. Sykes shows up and Gerard questions him and Sykes basically has a supposed alibi for the night of the murder. He was on some business trip and like 15 people vouched for him. Gerard leaves because he doesn't have anything on Sykes, but he knows he's dirty, so he investigates who the man in the picture was that Kimball was so interested in, and they're also going to keep an eye on Sykes. Kimball calls Dr. Nichols and tells him what he found out about Pervasic and how they were looking to kill him the night of the murder, not his wife. Nichols tells Kimball the other man in the photo, named Lentz, died in a car accident over the prior summer. You're always wondering what Kimball's next move is going to be, and it's highly enjoyable. Gerard stops Nichols again and asks him about if he had any contact with Kimball, and he doesn't give them any info. Meanwhile, Kimball keeps digging, and Sykes figures out a way to sneak out while cops are staking his house out. Dr. Whalen gets a visit from Kimball and finds out that they falsified the results in the tests to ultimately get Provasic approved. They find out that this Lentz might not have been the bad guy in all this and that approval signatures may have been forged. Gerard finds out that Nichols lied to him about knowing Lentz and obviously knew more than he let on, so he really wants to get him because he's clearly fucking behind this whole thing. Like, he definitely had a hand in it or probably masterminded the whole thing, but you don't really know that quite yet. It sounds like the car accident with Lentz was a setup, and they go to bring Sykes in and find that he fled. There's a great tense scene on the train where Kimball is about to be taken out by Sykes, but the police also spot Kimball, and the officer who tries to apprehend Kimball is none other than Neil Flynn, the janitor from Scrubs. Fun factoid, Neil Flynn later appeared on the TV show Scrubs, in which his character doesn't like to tell people that he appeared in The Fugitive. Sykes shoots the officer, and Kimball starts fighting Sykes a bit, and then he handcuffs him to a railing in the train, which is a fucking slick idea. But now the police think Kimball is a cop killer, unfortunately, and it's getting super exciting knowing we're in the home stretch. Nichols gets made head of the same pharma company, 
He's definitely behind this whole thing. At this point, you just know it. Kimball confronts Nichols when he's giving this speech at a banquet and explains what Nichols did to the crowd. So Kimball and Nichols leave the banquet hall and start fighting, and I gotta say, this Nichols guy wouldn't stand a fucking chance against Kimball, especially after all Kimball's been through. Like, this guy, every other movie I've seen him in, he plays a total bitch ass, whereas... Harrison Ford plays some of the coolest characters in history, as I mentioned. There's no way Indiana Jones slash Han Solo is losing to this fucking guy. Gerard pursues Kimball and Nichols onto the roof of the building, and the Chicago PD is in a helicopter opening fire at Kimball because they think he killed that cop. Gerard calls them off, and Nichols falls into an elevator, and Kimball falls on top of that elevator, but neither of them are dead, obviously. They wind up on the laundry floor of the building, and it's a cool locale for a final showdown. Kimball is stalking Nichols as all this laundry equipment is running and whatnot. Then the marshals are there, and they're trying to find both of them. Gerard calls out to Kimball and lets him know that the Chicago PD thinks he killed the cop on the train and will want him dead. He pleads with Kimball to surrender himself. Then, just as Nichols goes to kill Gerard... Kimball beats the ever-loving shit out of him with a metal rod, effectively saving Gerard. They arrest Sykes and Nichols, obviously. The press all wants to know what happened and how it all unfolded, because it seems like Kimball was kinda maybe gonna be capitally punished for nothing. There's a nice little moment in the back of a car where Gerard takes off Kimball's cuffs and gives him an ice pack and shows that he does care a little bit about stuff. And then we roll credits, that's the end of the movie, so praise for this movie. The pace of this movie might be the best of any I've seen, and I feel like that's kinda saying something. There's never a wasted moment, and everything has meaning. The performances across the board are stellar. The actual writing of this movie is stupendous, and it doesn't dwell on any one thing too much. The editing, given what you'll find out more about in the trivia section, is exceptional. The fact that they nixed any love interests for Kimball from the story was a great call. He should only be sad about his wife and want to clear his name. Criticism for this movie, I would love to just see the three-hour cut of this film that apparently exists, but I don't think it's going to be available anytime soon. And maybe a lot of the cuts really were made for pacing and they were ultimately not necessary. Okay, so on to trivia. This was the first American movie shown in Chinese theaters in over 40 years. Audiences accustomed to local movies were blown away when they saw it, and it became a huge hit there. The studio and the producers were extremely happy with Andrew Davis's cut of the film before he edited it down to a final running time of 2 hours 11 minutes and told him, It's perfect. Don't touch a thing. Davis still made another 1,600 edits to the film for pacing, tightening up scenes that needed to be stronger, and things like that. The credits run over the first 15 minutes of the film, although it's not a constant stream of them. After about 4 minutes, there is a gap of nearly 10 minutes for the trial before the credits wrap up during the bus ride. The screenplay spent 5 years in development hell, going through 9 writers and 25 drafts, which is amazing and reminds me of Rogue One. With Rogue One and The Fugitive, a large number of rewrites paid off, but I feel like ordinarily it would make me assume a movie was going to ultimately suck. On to info and ratings, we have a runtime of 130 minutes. This movie is rated PG-13 by the Motion Picture Association of America. 
budget 44 million, opening weekend 23.8 million, worldwide gross 368.9 million, IMDb rating 7.8, Rotten Tomato Critics score 96%, Rotten Tomato Audience score 89%, personal rating 5 out of 5 stars. This is a fucking great one. I absolutely love it. One of my all-time favorite movies, honestly. I can't get enough of it. I rewatch it pretty regularly. It's just so fucking good, honestly. Okay, so moving on to The Hunt for Red October. Released on March 2nd, 1990, based on the novel of the same name by Tom Clancy. Directed by John McTiernan, and he did Predator and Die Hard, previously covered on this podcast. I really like both of those movies, especially Die Hard. It's an all-time great. He did Last Action Hero with Arnold Schwarzenegger, and I remember that movie being just okay. It really wanted to be something great. Like, it was kind of like satire of the big action movies in the 80s and stuff, and it just it wasn't quite as good as it wanted to be. He also did Die Hard with a Vengeance, and that one is solid. It has, obviously, Bruce Willis. It's the third movie in the series, and... It also has Samuel L. Jackson, and they have really great chemistry in that movie. I really fucking like it. And he also did the Thomas Crown Affair remake from 1999, and I've never seen the Steve McQueen Thomas Crown Affair, but I fucking love the remake. I think it's fucking great. It's honestly just fucking wonderful. For the writers, we have Larry Ferguson and Donald E. Stewart. Larry Ferguson did Highlander, and I still don't know if I need to fucking see this movie. It's just perplexing to me. I don't think it's my kind of movie. I think that whole era that it takes place in is not when I usually like to see period pieces set. He also did Beverly Hills Cop 2, which is not as good as the first one, of course, but it's still decent. It's definitely not as bad as Beverly Hills Cop 3. And he also did Alien 3, which is one I've been dying to check out. I really just need to fucking pull the trigger already. But it's just, I also haven't really heard great things about it, but I love David Fincher so much. And Donald E. Stewart did a bunch of Tom Clancy slash Jack Ryan movies like Patriot Games and A Clear and Present Danger. For the producer, we have Mace Newfeld, and he basically also just did a bunch of Jack Ryan movies. For the score, we have composer Basil Polidorus, And he did Red Dawn, the original from the 80s, and that one is fucking great. It's well documented how much I love that movie. He also did RoboCop, previously covered on this podcast, and I fucking love RoboCop. It's one of my all-time favorites. And he also did Free Willy, and I just have to say, I can't imagine that that movie is any good at all. I've seen it, but I don't remember anything about it other than the whale jumping over the kid at the end to be free. But honestly, I just don't think I'd like it if I went back and revisited it. I just don't think it would be good. For the cast, we have Sean Connery, who plays Captain First Rank Marco Ramius. He was James Bond in six official James Bond movies and one unofficial James Bond movie. And he was probably, and my, for my money, he was the best Bond. He might just be tied with Daniel Craig because I really like Daniel Craig. But I would say, in my opinion... Sean Connery's movies, on the whole, might have been better. I mean, his first four movies were fucking solid James Bond movies, some of the best ever. That's definitely not something that Daniel Craig can say. He was in The Rock, which is a Michael Bay movie that features Nicolas Cage and Ed Harris, and that one's pretty solid. I'll probably cover 
the movie eventually on this podcast. He was in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade as Indiana Jones's dad, and they had fucking great chemistry, him and Harrison Ford. And honestly, I just, I fucking love that movie. Then we have Alec Baldwin, who plays CIA intelligence analyst Jack Ryan. He was in Glengarry Glen Ross, and as I mentioned, you definitely need to check out at least his scene in that movie. He was in The Aviator, which is a Martin Scorsese movie with Leonardo DiCaprio, and I really thought that was okay. It was better than I expected it to be, but it was not bad. He was also in The Departed, which is another great Martin Scorsese movie, star-studded cast, Amazing performances, definitely check that one out. And he was also in 30 Rock, which is a great show. I really like it. I know it's not for everyone, but he plays Jack Donaghy on that show. He is basically the head of this company, and it's just, it's fucking great. I mean, I don't know. It's it's fucking funny. Tim Curry plays Dr. Petrov, and he was in the Rocky Horror Picture Show. And I finally broke down and checked that one out a little while back. It's not my kind of movie. I don't like musicals at all. I don't give a shit about the the dressed in drag or whatever they're doing. It That doesn't bother me. It's the fucking musicals of it all. I, I mean, there are some catchy tunes in it, but ultimately it was like I didn't like the basis for the fucking movie. It just wasn't something that grabbed me. He was in Clue, which is one that is worth checking out maybe, but it's definitely not one I need to go back and revisit a bunch because it was just okay. And he was in Home Alone 2, Lost in New York, and that one is an inferior sequel to the original, and honestly, it's just a lot of the same kind of jokes. It's just like rehashed for fitting into that movie, and I can't get behind it. Then we have James Earl Jones, who plays Vice Admiral James Greer, And he played Darth Vader in the Star Wars movies, and unfortunately, he announced recently that he was stepping down and not portraying the role anymore. He was in Field of Dreams, which is a movie that I'd probably like a hell of a lot better if it didn't have Kevin Costner, I'll tell you that much. He was in Coming to America, which is a very funny Eddie Murphy movie. It's also got Arsenio Hall in it, and it's just, overall, it's a fun movie. I really like it. It's it's cool to watch. And of course, he voiced Mufasa in The Lion King. I love him as Mufasa. He has such a fucking great voice, and it's just fucking stupendous. Then we have Sam Neill, who played Captain Borodine, and he was in Jurassic Park, previously covered on this podcast. He was the lead in that movie, and I really liked that one, but in the episode that I talked about it, I basically only had one complaint, and that was like a lack of relatable characters in it. He was also in Hunt for the Wilder People, which honestly, if you want to watch a silly little comedy, it's well worth your time. It's a very fun watch. It's it's very interesting, and they've all got New Zealand accents because it's a New Zealand movie. Honestly, I fucking love New Zealand accents so much. Then we have Scott Glenn, who plays Commander Bart Mancuso, and he was in The Silence of the Lambs. And I love that movie. I need to buy it. I still haven't gotten around to it. I need to see the next time it's on sale. I might just buy it. Then he was in Backdraft, which I barely remember. I remember not being overly impressed with it, though. And he was in The Bourne Ultimatum. And that one's solid. I mean, honestly, The Bourne Trilogy, the originals, were fucking solid-ass movies. I really liked them. And last but not least, we have Jeffrey Jones, who plays Skip Tyler. And he was in... Ferris Bueller's Day Off, previously covered on this podcast. 
And honestly, Jeffrey Jones's backstory about the things that he allegedly did, or I don't know if he was convicted or what, but basically he's allegedly a bag of shit and I'm not a big fan, but he was good in Ferris Bueller's Day Off. For the casting notes, Kevin Costner was the first choice to play Jack Ryan in this movie. Harrison Ford was also considered. Ford would later go on to play the character in Patriot Games and A Clear and Present Danger. Alec Baldwin accepted the role of Jack Ryan because Harrison Ford turned it down. Cast member Sam Neill also benefited from Ford's refusal three years later by being cast in the lead role in Jurassic Park. Interestingly, Baldwin asked for a big pay increase for Patriot Games from 1992, to which the producers allegedly replied, For that price, we could get Harrison Ford. Baldwin held his ground, and the studio agreed to the fee, but for Ford instead of Baldwin. And honestly, what a dumb fuck move by Baldwin, because he was not that big of a star at that point. And if somebody's telling you, yeah, we could fucking get a much more popular actor than you to be in this movie at the price you're asking for, maybe that's when you fucking back down. James Earl Jones, who played Admiral James Greer, was the only actor to reprise his role in Patriot Games from 1992 and A Clear and Present Danger from 1994. For the plot synopsis, the captain of a Soviet submarine equipped with advanced stealth features goes rogue and has to face off against American and Russian militaries while a CIA operative is tasked with finding out the captain's true intentions. The tagline for this movie is, The Hunt is On. And that's not bad. Alright guys, let's just dive right into the plot of this fucking movie. So, I got the feeling that I was going to be confused a lot in this one which is typically in Tom Clancy's nature to confuse me. His storytelling just seems to be very detailed, but to be fair, I've never read his books, just the films based on them. I do recognize that I'll try and be reading subtitles while taking notes, and it's my complete nightmare scenario to have to fucking read subtitles and take notes at the same time. It's already hard enough to watch a movie and take notes without missing something, so I had to do a lot of pausing, which I hate. Sean Connery as Ramius is embarking on a journey on the submarine called, would you believe it, The Red October. We see a bit of Jack Ryan's home life. He's played by Alec Baldwin. Baldwin is one of those actors a lot of people don't like, but I've actually come around to him. I think he's pretty fucking great. He tells a flight attendant he doesn't like to sleep on a plane because of turbulence. This moment is referenced by Alec Baldwin's character in 30 Rock, but he says he doesn't sleep on planes because he doesn't want to get incepted, which is legitimately hysterical to me. Jack goes to see Vice Admiral James Greer, played by James Earl Jones. Jack talks to Greer about the Red October and Captain Ramius and concerns over the sub and what it's potentially capable of. They show an American submarine, I think it's the USS Dallas, and there's a guy showing some other guy the ropes regarding sonar and stuff. Then suddenly something comes on their system that they have cause to be alarmed about. I guess it's the Red October they're detecting. We go aboard the Red October and Ramius talks briefly with Captain Borodin, played by Sam Neill. Ramius then talks to a Soviet official named Ivan Putin, who appears to just be checking in on Ramius in the Red October, but apparently not. I guess I really just kind of assumed that, but apparently he's supposed to be on board at all times. There's this absolutely incredible moment here where Ramius is talking to Putin, 
All of the Russian has been subtitled, obviously, but it slowly zooms in on Putin's mouth as he's reading some text. When he reads the word Armageddon, which is the same word in both Russian and English, he begins speaking in English, and it's a great way to handle that issue so you don't have fucking subtitles the entire time. Like, I don't know about you, but I don't love when I feel like I'm reading an entire fucking movie. If I wanted to do that, I'd read a fucking book, honestly. It's one thing to have closed captioning on all the time and use it to get clarity on some words that don't come out clear, but to do viewers this service is the first and probably only time I've encountered such a moment in a film. Putin suggests that the text Ramius is reading is questionable for a man in his position, as it's about the end of the world. Ramius kind of shuts him down and says the book he's reading from belonged to his late wife, and he keeps it for sentimental reasons. They decide to read their orders, and they are to rendezvous with some other submarine. Putin goes to tell the troops about the mission, and Ramius straight up kills him before he can go. Ramius burns the plans, then calls the doctor and stages the death as an accident, where Putin supposedly slipped on some tea that he had spilled. Meanwhile, Jack comes to an area where they're building subs, and we get noted pedophile Jeffrey Jones. Jones's character tells Jack that the Red October has a caterpillar drive that disguises itself from sonar. After the release of Tom Clancy's novel, The Hunt for Red October, some members of Congress contacted the CIA, demanding to know why the Russians had invented a caterpillar drive before the U.S. Navy did. Although a result of good research, the Caterpillar Drive is purely fiction. Then we have Tim Curry. He's here. I'm so excited. He plays Dr. Petrov, and he wants to return to base now that Putin is dead, as no sub travels without a Soviet official on board. This is for the whole checks and balances system with two keys to trigger any number of defense systems. But Ramius says it's fine, and they can't abandon their mission. Ramius addresses the troops by intercom. He says that they will be going against the American military, conducting missile drills off the east coast of the United States. He says a lot of things that would motivate the prideful countrymen. He presents the whole plan as a major threat to the U.S., where they will retreat to the safe haven of Cuba following the attacks. The U.S. sub loses track while following the Red October when it kicks on its Caterpillar drive. Basically, the propellers just shut off, and it kicks on this quiet, continuous track-type propulsion, as I understand it. The Red October confirms that the U.S. has stopped tracking them as they all sing some Russian song. The song is okay. It could probably chart, but it's definitely not going to number one. There's this cool steady cam shot where they track this big shot Soviet military guy into his office, and he has a letter waiting from Ramius, and he drops his glass while reading it. And I've never been a huge fan of that gag. I could see dropping a cup if someone startled you. Not for this. But just reading a letter, no matter what it says, does not excuse dropping a drink. That's a fucking party foul right there. It's pretty clear the letter said what Ramius is up to, but that's only alluded to. Jack talks to Greer about the Caterpillar Drive, and Greer has already heard about it from the U.S. sub who lost track of the Red October. Jack has to brief a group of high-ranking officials about the Red October and what it's capable of, as well as a background on Ramius. The sub would be undetectable to the U.S. Atlantic defense systems, and this is obviously a huge cause for concern. Like, you don't want to act like it's not a problem or a threat and then have something happen and it just fucking blows up in your face. 
One of these high-ranking officials talks about the guy who got the letter from Ramius's reaction to what he learned in the letter. Apparently, he dispatched a fleet of ships and or subs to sink the Red October. So naturally, they're concerned that Ramius is a more dangerous and raving lunatic than previously thought. As the panic starts, Jack gets a thought. He thinks Ramius might be trying to defect to the U.S. since he's not Russian and his wife is dead and has no personal ties to the Soviet Union. One of the officials stays after the briefing and he talks to Jack. Jack suggests they try and board the Red October, posing as inspectors and hopefully find out what Ramius's plans really are. So that is the part that Jack will play in this. You notice he's the only one I'm referring to by first name, and it's not just because Jack Ryan and I are such good buds, but Jack is Alec Baldwin's character name on 30 Rock, and it's just easier for me to remember. Can you imagine being that asshole that has to smoke on a fucking submarine? Like, you could never get away from it, and it'd feel like it was always lingering in the air. Some of the men on board what I assume is a different sub are talking about how they're going to have to kill Ramius, and I think maybe these are the Russians, but I'm not positive. Tim Curry is fucking good in everything, even in weaker movies or smaller roles. If you ever get a chance, check out the Audible audiobook where he reads A Christmas Carol. It's fucking masterful. Some of the higher-ranking men are questioning Ramius in regard to what happened to Putin, they don't believe the story about him slipping on his tea, shockingly. The men are concerned about a mutiny if the crew finds out Putin was murdered. Ramius makes his intention to defect clear, but is pretty much psychotically calm while talking about what he's done and what his plans are. The men leave the meeting with Ramius and are not super enthused about the situation he's put them in. They are most angry that he informed Moscow about his intentions, and basically they just feel like they're definitely going to come after them. But Ramius says he's more concerned about the Americans than the Soviets. We see Jack taking a rough ride on a plane, and I believe they've made it sound like he's got very little in the way of field experience. One of the analysts on the USS Dallas explains that something he overheard on sonar sounded like a man-made machine, when the recording was sped up at the same time the Red October went silent. So they try and plot a potential course to track the Red October and find where it's headed. Scott Glenn is familiar, but I legitimately have no idea what I know him from specifically. Is it Silence of the Lambs? I don't know. It's been quite a long time since I watched that one. And this officer talking to Jack, I can't find his name, but he's also super familiar and... It seems like he usually plays a similar part to this. Sam Neill is one of the few significant Russian characters actually doing a good Russian accent here, and I appreciate you, Dr. Grant, especially considering you're a New Zealander. I want to develop a rating system for movies that have amazing surround sound. This movie would get a B- so far, but there hasn't been much excitement, really. The Red October is making its moves and suddenly they hear or feel something. Apparently something is wrong with the Caterpillar system and they'll have to switch back to propellers and they'll be detectable by sonar again. There appears to be an unknown saboteur in their midst, potentially. I guess this ambassador is being grilled by some important angry American official guy. Could be the president. Could be legitimately anyone, honestly. The guy suggests a joint rescue mission for the Red October to the ambassador, and he says that all that can be done is being done. 
and they seem to have found the Red October by sonar, with it now being detectable since the Caterpillar drive is offline, and there's a lot of movie before we actually see Jack and Ramius meet, like, over an hour already, and nothing yet, and there's still a long fucking way to go. There's this scene where they fired a torpedo, and you just don't know what to expect. The Red October seemingly dodges it, but they can't help but feel like if the enemy were actually trying, they would have been done for. Sean Connery is really fucking terrific in this movie. He has a lot of internal conflict showing through in most of his scenes. Jack is realizing he has to figure out how Ramius is going to try and get the crew off of the sub. He thinks he's figured it out, but no one wants to listen to him. Basically, Jack thinks that since it's a nuclear sub, staging an emergency related to the nuclear reactor to get the men off board would be plausible. Jack notices this USS Dallas sub is off by itself in the middle of nowhere, and he thinks they're tracking the Red October, but of course no one believes him. This happens in a lot of movies where the protagonist is right about virtually everything, but no one listens to them. Like, for instance, Ellen Ripley in the Alien movies is so right so fucking often, and everyone tells her to fuck off, and it ultimately gets them killed. She could have prevented everything in those movies if people would have just not brushed her off, but they did, so they were fucked. So Jack wants to get on board the Dallas, so he has to fly out to it. They fix the Caterpillar drive, and Ramius just seems a bit despondent when he hears the news. Borodine talks about where he wants to settle in the U.S. when he gets there, and all the weird shit he wants to do. Like, he wants to live in Montana and have a pickup truck and raise rabbits, which is a little kinky for my taste. Ramius won't share what he wants to do when he defects. He talks about fishing and being at sea and war and all sorts of shit in his life, and he just seems so distraught. Commander Mancuso gets some distressing news, but I guess we don't know what that is. Or maybe I was too busy taking fucking notes to pick up on it. Jack tries to get on board the Dallas by way of a helicopter, and it seems like that'd be a super hard maneuver to pull off, with the sub moving and having to keep up in the chopper. Jack can't stick the landing, so he drops off into the water and has to be rescued. A little trivia, the scene where Jack Ryan, played by Alec Baldwin, is lowered onto the USS Dallas was filmed in the parking lot of the Mole Pier at Long Beach Naval Station on a beautiful sunny day. Editing made it look like it was the ocean, and by the way, it was most definitely not fucking sunny in the movie either. Back with this ambassador and the important American guy, the ambassador tells him that Ramius intends to ultimately fire on the United States, and the Soviets want help taking him down first. Mancuso talks to Jack, and Jack explains the situation with the Red October. But Mancuso gets word about what the Russians are reporting about Ramius, and the letter says that they are authorized to use all force necessary to take Ramius down. Jack obviously knows that this new information was falsified by the Russians to get the U.S. to help take Ramius down before he defects. The Dallas is gearing up for an onslaught of the Red October, so Jack pleads with Mancuso to recognize what is really going on, Jack tries convincing Mancuso he's right by accurately predicting the Red October's next move based on what time it is. 
So Jack obviously wants to get on board the Red October and do what he needs to do. Ramius orders that the crew set up their target, but not open the torpedo doors to not show his hand, I guess. I don't know if for sure that's what's happening. Jack has them send a telegraph warning Ramius about what's coming. Ramius is flabbergasted that they figured out what his plans were. At over an hour and 40 in, Connery and Baldwin on screen together still has not happened, but it does appear imminent. I was just getting antsy by that point. I mean, I just couldn't fucking take it. I was like, come the fuck on, when are they going to be on screen together? Jack reveals he didn't actually know how Ramius would act when he predicted it and just took a 50-50 chance. Ramius is responding as a nuclear emergency happens in the sub and is told by Dr. Petrov that they've been sabotaged. So they evacuate the Red October and ensure everyone is off board in life rafts. They spot an American frigate and they warn the Red October not to resubmerge or they'll fire upon them. They fire a torpedo at the sub, but Greer shows up and self-destructs the torpedo and makes the guy manning the station say it didn't actually self-destruct and it actually hit the hull of the Red October as planned. Then, like a pimp, Greer just fucking tells him he was never fucking there and walks off. I'll be honest, this movie has been interesting to this point, but now it's just getting downright intense. It's just so fucking exciting. Before Jack goes to board the sub, Mancuso gives him a pistol just in case he's wrong about Ramius. So I guess multiple people other than Jack are boarding the sub, including Mancuso, which I didn't realize. Ramius can't believe Jack figured out the fake reactor issue, and Jack explains that the torpedo was fired to keep up appearances. Suddenly, they realize the Russians are firing on the Red October unexpectedly. Ramius goes to have Jack man a station, and Jack says he's not a naval officer. He just works for the CIA, just writing books, apparently. But Ramius wants him to just do what he's told, and as the torpedo is fucking bearing down on them, Ramius is busy asking Jack what books he's written. Oh no, Borodine died in a rash of gunfire that happened on the Red October, damn. The gunman is one of the crew that hid on the sub when it was evacuated. Mancuso gives Ramius a pistol and sends Jack with him to find the unknown gunman to prevent the sub from being destroyed. Jack's inexperience with this stuff does add to the excitement and even adds maybe a little bit of humor. It's a race to the finish as the Soviets are bearing down and they're trying to stop this gunman. But then the Dallas intervenes as the Russians fire another torpedo. Jack catches the cook and realizes he's the gunman and Jack shoots him dead. The music is overwhelming, maybe a little dated, but it suits this movie pretty well. So they managed to dodge the final torpedo and divert it back to the Russian sub that fired it originally, which is a pretty smooth move if you ask me. The ambassador and the important guy are talking and saying the crew was recovered, and I still maintain that this guy has got to be the president, I'm just, I'm telling you. The Russian ambassador clearly isn't sold on the Red October meeting its demise. He also mentions the sub they lost, which is no doubt the one that got hit by its own torpedo. Sean Connery's hairpiece is aggressive in this movie, and maybe it's just because I know he's bald, but it's setting off my wigdar pretty fucking bad, and my wigdar is not particularly strong. A big piece of trivia, after consulting with the wardrobe and makeup departments behind John McTiernan's back, Sir Sean Connery arrived on set for his first day of shoots with his hairpiece incorporating a ponytail. Several years later, once Connery's potential influence had greatly waned, 
John McTiernan stated in an interview with Sight and Sound magazine that he was fucking livid with Connery and that the Scottish actor tried to use his considerable heft with the studio going over the director's head to pass the alteration with producers. It seemed as though Connery was to get his way until midway through the second day's shooting when the director of photography, Jan de Bont, started laughing while reviewing the dailies, remarking to Connery that his ponytail looked like a limp, swinging dick. This soon became a joke among the crew, and by the end of the second day, Connery was so upset at the mockery, he relented, having makeup remove the alteration and forcing the reshoot of a key scene. McTiernan joked that the reported cost of the hairpiece, approximately $20,000, was mainly down to the cost of those subsequent reshoots, and that the hair seen in the final movie was merely a $10 bargain from a thrift shop. So basically, they get away and slip into hiding, and the movie ends with Jack asleep on a plane, and now he's definitely going to get incepted. All right, everyone, so praise for this movie. The cast is stellar. Both established and lesser-known actors at the time give great performances. The slow burn of the plot, it's a little slow on the pace, but it's pretty decent. The interesting way that it was shot, especially that scene where they switch from Russian to English, is just fucking masterful. Criticism, like I said, it's a tad slow in the first half, to be completely honest. It strikes me as one my dad would definitely like and probably fall asleep while watching. For trivia, Sir Sean Connery spent time underway aboard the USS Puffer preparing for his role. He was given commander status and allowed to give commands while underway with the captain beside him. Despite the novel being a bestseller, many studios originally were unwilling to adapt the book into a movie because many felt it was too complicated and hard to understand. To help the audience quickly grasp which sub's interior they were seeing as the movie jumped from scene to scene and sub to sub, the filmmakers created a subtle lighting scheme, blue for Red October, green for the Alpha Class, and red for Dallas. Seems like you would have gone with red for Red October, but I'm an old-fashioned kind of guy. The underwater model of the Red October has never been in the water. This effect was achieved using mist from dry ice on the quote-unquote underwater set and a few digital touch-ups. The sub was hung by 12 wires from an overhead grid, which gave the ability to turn and tilt the model as needed. Navy recruiters set up booths in some theater lobbies for people to sign up to join the service or to at least look into it. The Pentagon hoped that this movie would do the same for submarine service that Top Gun did for naval aviation. Filming started on April 3, 1989, with the Cold War still in progress, but when it was released in 1990, the Soviet government announced that the Communist Party was no longer in charge of everything. Producers found this obstacle irrelevant and went on with the release, but using a disclaimer telling that the story takes place in 1984, the same year Tom Clancy's novel was published, during the Cold War. Due to his obligation to this movie, director John McTiernan had to pass up the opportunity to direct Die Hard 2 from 1990. It is a manly movie is the title of this trivia entry. Gates McFadden with Luis Boras as Jack Ryan's wife and daughter and Denise E. James as a flight attendant have the only credited female-speaking roles, and all of their dialogue scenes are over before the end of the opening credits. 
There is an uncredited female engineer speaking in the background at Skip Tyler's dry dock, and another non-speaking flight attendant appears at the end, but apart from that, there are no women in this movie. A little bit of IMDb nuggets, Richard Jordan's character has a bowl of jelly beans on his desk. The movie takes place during the Reagan presidency. Reagan's fondness for jelly beans was well known. I fucking knew it. That guy was the president. They just kind of didn't really, for some reason, I don't feel like it was anything with storytelling. It's just like, fucking make that clear. Have the ambassador address him as Mr. President and clear up that confusion. Okay, so on to info and ratings. We have a runtime of 135 minutes. This movie is rated PG by the Motion Picture Association of America. Budget, $30 million. Opening weekend, $17.2 million. Worldwide gross, $200.5 million. IMDb rating, 7.5. Rotten Tomato Critics score, 88%. Rotten Tomato Audience score, 88%. Personal rating, 4.5 out of 5 stars. It's just the pacing issue. It's a little slow here and there. I think it's overall still a very solid movie. Definitely worth watching, but I just have to admit that it is a bit slow in spots. Okay, so that was our episode for today on dad movies. I hope you enjoyed it, and hopefully my dad enjoyed it as well. Obviously, reach out to me if you have any suggestions or requests or anything like that. I apologize if it's like a super long time for a turnaround between when you request something and when I actually release it but it's just the nature of the beast. I'm way ahead on recordings. It's funny, I had like 19 episodes that I was ahead. They're just waiting to be released, and I still get like anxious when I use that safety net to like not record a new episode one week, and it's like, holy fuck, man. But all right, everyone. Well, I hope you have a good rest of your day. Bye now. Brandon at Random Reviews is written, recorded, produced, edited, and engineered by Brandon Griffiths. The theme music is performed by Augusto Diniz and was acquired by way of Fiverr.com.